Hey ladies, just wanted to tell you about a great opportunity with Striving for Eternity. They are going to Israel. They're offering a 13-day trip from February 20th to March 4th, 2023, with Andrew Rappaport from The Rappaport, Matt Slick from CARM.org, and Bill McKeever of Mormon Research Ministry. And until May 31st, you can sign up and receive $100 off the price of the trip. For details and to sign up, go to 2023israeltour.com. That's 2023israeltour.com. Now on to the episode. Welcome to Thoroughly Equipped, a podcast for women where we compare the popular women's ministry teachings, books, conferences, Bible studies, etc. to scripture. Our focus is 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I am your host, Melba Toast. May this episode bless you and bring glory to God. Hello ladies and welcome to another episode of Thoroughly Equipped. So glad you can join me today. If you are new, welcome. We are trudging on ahead with a critique on the very popular women's conference, The If Gathering. If this is your first time listening, I highly suggest you first go to my trailer for Thoroughly Equipped and then dive into the first of this series on the If Gathering, which is episode three of this season, and this season is season two. And before we dive in, I want to uh, thank you guys for being so patient. (laughs) Um, This has been a lot more work than I ever imagined, getting clips, listening to the whole entire last three years, going through it, studying, um, diving into scripture. All of it has been very fruitful for me, but a lot of, a lot of hard work. And so I've had to switch from going once a week to releasing an episode to twice a week just to be able to get more time in to do my study. So I thank you again for being patient throughout all of it. So let's go ahead and get into um, reviewing the last couple of uh, critique series I did. I presented to you the heart or purpose of the If Gathering, and we compared their goal in discipleship to Scripture's goal in discipleship. I had the intent of diving straight into looking at the ministries of the popular female speakers that are platformed in the conference so I could give you guys a litmus test by which to judge whose authority they put themselves under, and I realized that I should probably make a case for the first question and the test, and that is, do they preach and teach over men in the church service? So the second episode in the series deals with what Scripture says in regards to this. In the third episode of the series, I presented to you the litmus test and these women's ministries, their books, their speaking engagements, and their activities within popular evangelicalism today. In the last episode of this series, I wanted to present to you a case by George Whitfield on why we should always be about knowing Christ. And 
Today's episode is about the way these speakers handle scripture in a conference. Of course, that's not just today's episode, but the next couple episodes to come. Now, to really um, hone in on this, I'm going back to the 2020 conference. And that's because in this conference, Miss Allen decided to have each of the speakers give a message on Romans 8 splitting the chapter into sections from which they will teach. And yes, we are going to address each message. To lay out for you how I'm going to tackle this, I will present the speaker, read the passage that they are supposedly teaching on, and then give you a synopsis of what they spoke about. I'm going to be fair and address what I felt was good, and then play for you clips where there are issues and problematic teachings. Now, if you're able, I highly suggest you grab your Bible and open up to Romans. We are going to be going through referencing more than just chapter 8 throughout this series, because this chapter is not to be read in a vacuum, but is in the context of a letter written to the Romans on the Christian faith, and more specific to this chapter, the contrast between those who walk in the flesh and those who walk in the spirit. All right, to start, I'm going to play for you a clip from the 2020 conference introduction given by Jenny Allen herself, talking about her vision for that year's conference. We are fighting for you, because we are at war, people. It is wild, and we need Jesus more than we've ever needed him, and this world needs Jesus. And as I prayed about 2020, let me tell you, this is what I dreamt. This is what I saw. It wasn't about us. It wasn't about you watching. It wasn't about you in your seat. It was about the world. And I believe what's going to happen here in the next two days, it's going to shape eternity. I believe it. And not because we're fancy or special, but because we're going to preach the name of Jesus. We're going to preach the name of Jesus. It's the only name we care about. It's the only name that changes lives. It's the only hope we have to give. And those of you that that's news to you and your neighbor tricked you, I'm sorry. But you know what I think? I think you're going to love him. I think you're going to love him. I think you're going to find out he's so different than what you thought. He is delightful. And he is delighted that we're together. So you can tell she is very passionate as she portrays a desire that the audience come to know Jesus and proclaim Jesus to the world. So as I present to you their messages, keep this in mind and observe how much they talk about him and proclaim him. So she's going to continue discussing her hopes for the women attending here. I mean, I think about that, guys. I think about the devil that has oppressed you, that has torn your freaking life apart. And I think about all of us gathered, preaching the name of Jesus, loving the name of Jesus. And I think we're just people, but we're showing up. And I think that could change the world. That's why we're here. We believe in just people full of the spirit of God, teaching the word of God, praying to the living God. We believe in you to change the world. So I just had to tell you before we got going, two days, let's worship our God. 
So there's a couple things that I just want us to take note of here. One is that she identifies that the devil comes and oppress, oppresses us in our lives. So that's something that we can keep in the back of our head as we are critiquing uh, the whole um, 2020 conference here. And two, she believes it is the mission of God's people to change the world. Now, I want to bring to your attention that the mission of the church is to make disciples of Christ, to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that he has commanded. That's Matthew 28:19 to 20 Christianity and discipleship is not The goal is not to change the world, but to save individuals from God's wrath to come. God's wrath is against the world, and the world knows it and hates God. Christ states this in John 15, 18-25. So, he says, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you? A servant is no greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. See, the world wants change, but change done its way. It wants change without God, without repentance of its sin, and without the work of Christ. It does not want to be reconciled to God, as it hates the Father. The problem with popular evangelicalism today is that it wants to comply with the world's way of changing instead of God's way of changing. And I am fully convinced now that the if gathering does exactly that, comply with the world. That is one of the things I wish to present to you in the future critiques of this series. I'm going to pray. And we're going to start this thing off with one of my favorite chapters in this book called the Bible. And whether you've known Jesus for a long time or you're just checking him out, we're not going to water him down here. We're going to Romans 8. I don't know that there's a deeper theological piece of work in the Bible. So we're going here. And what you will leave with, I believe, is more of Jesus. All right. So in that clip, she acknowledges that there may be people in the audience who are just checking Jesus out. Now, that would imply that unbelievers are in the audience. And she emphasizes how they will go through Romans chapter 8 and will leave with more of Jesus. So, we want to see if the gospel is actually presented. Do any of the speakers present our problem and placard Christ as our only hope? 
Romans is the perfect place to go to get a thorough plot proclamation of both of these things. But Romans 8, if not handled in context and twisted, can easily lead an unbeliever to think that they are right with God without acknowledging their sin, their repentance of their sin, and their need for a savior because of their sin. The majority of the book of Romans itself is proclaiming our problem and need for Christ. So let's keep this in mind as well, to observe if they are taught that they are sinners under God's judgment and are urged to trust in Christ and his work for the forgiveness of their sins. The 2020 conference is a perfect opportunity to show how these women handle scripture. Do they draw from the scripture in context what the Holy Spirit through Paul wishes to teach us? Or do they take certain verses, words, or concepts out of their context so they may interject what they want to teach? Do they talk more about themselves, their stories, or do they talk about Christ and his work? Do they talk rightly about sin so they can rightly give the gospel? Do they make the gospel more about God's great love for you, his pursuit of you, and his plans for you without first explaining our sinful nature, our state as children of wrath, who have no hope without trusting in the finished work of Christ? Do they exalt Christ and his work because by it we have no other hope? Or do they treat the gospel as something of the past? And now we need motivational, engaging speeches to encourage us to live as Christians. Do they not only proclaim by words that the scriptures are authoritative, without error, and sufficient to train us into righteousness, but act on that belief by teaching from the scriptures, handling it with honor in its context, urging their listeners to look to it, to thoroughly equip them for all good works? Or do they dishonor it and minimize its necessity to equip us by adding their own philosophies, examples, and opinions? So let's really look at the way they handle scripture. The first session centered on Romans 8 was a message delivered by Jada Edwards on verses 1 to 4. Now let's open up our Bibles and look at the text, Romans 8, 1-4, and what it says. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, if you've opened your Bible, keep it open there. I'm going to start with her message, but as we're going through her message, we will go um, back into chapter 7 as well as look at this passage in Romans 8. So, Miss Edwards starts her message on a story mourning the loss of a sports star who recently, in 2020, had passed away. She uses the story to dive into the theme of her message. 
how the world views Christianity and its answer to the problem of evil in the world. She rightly points out that people come to Christianity thinking it will fulfill our worldly needs. Living in a culture, even in the church world, that primarily views Christianity as useful rather than crucial. We primarily view Christianity as useful rather than crucial. And so depending on where we are and what our social and psychological and physical and financial needs are, then we run to Christianity. And if it fails us, we find a way to meet our own needs. So the world doesn't think of Christianity as divine revelation, but human opinion. So that's why we say things like, oh, if that's your truth. Oh, I get it, but this is my truth. Because somewhere in some alternate reality, we've created versions of truth. And Paul tells me in Galatians, there's only one truth. There's one gospel. And anything apart from that is not a truth. But we create these versions. And so the world gets more and more confused. We don't believe in the church and outside of the church that God knows our deepest need and can provide the remedy in Christ Jesus alone. The world thinks they know their own needs. But here's the thing. The problem is that sometimes in the church, we do too. Now, I love the church. I love the church. We have a church. I go to church. I love the church. However, the church can get a little off track, too, because the church is led by people. And we tend to form messages and create an idea that Jesus Christ and the gospel is set up to fix your life. And, and if you want to follow him, uh, it really is about making good decisions so he will bless your good decisions. And so most of our sermon series and the things that are popular in our churches today, and, and this is not self-righteous. We have to wrestle with this in our own church. They tend to address people's practical problems more than the overarching truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we love to talk about fixing marriages and getting your finances right and raising uh, great children and what does it mean to find your calling and your purpose. And those things are good, but the gospel is the only thing that really changes lives. I, I find that we, we want to manipulate the hand of God with our righteous living. Yes, just how true is that? It is exactly what I did in my own religious life, and I am super impressed that she would point this out. I wish, though, that she would call it what it is. Pride, sin, doubt in God's sovereignty and goodness. Now, R.C. Sproul describes these people as wanting the blessings of God, but not wanting God himself. And that is so true of so many people in the purpose-driven, pragmatic, and prosperity gospel churches. They come to God for blessings, whether that be the blessing of purpose, security, success, material possessions, successful marriages, health and wealth, and not understand their deepest need for God himself. Now, after describing in her life how she has to, at times, remind her kids that the provisions of candy or sleeping on a mattress or eating dinner, etc., are treats. She explains how we sometimes don't understand that God has supplied our greatest need, making all other things treats. It is after explaining this that she dives into the text. Now, I really appreciated that she went into what Paul wrote before chapter 8, because it's in these chapters that our sinful nature is laid bare for us, and Christ's work is argued as our only salvation. And she points out that there is bad news that comes before this good news, 
that we receive in chapter 8. I only wish she didn't make it more of a synopsis instead of just reading the text. But let's listen in. So what happens in the first seven chapters of Romans, Paul says, let me tell you the mess that we got ourselves into. Creation was a mess. They act like they didn't see God in the sunsets and the beauty of the earth. They act like they didn't hear the, the voice of God speaking to them. They ignored it. We were sinful. We were a mess. I, it's just bad after bad after bad. Chapter 7, he comes and says, listen, even on my best day, I'm a mess. I've got internal conflict happening. And he ends chapter 7 by saying, but thanks be to God that Jesus has come and saved the day. Now, I can appreciate what she's saying in this clip, but there is something I want to point out in the second to last statement she states there, that Paul in chapter 7 is conveying that he is quote-unquote a mess, and that he has internal conflict. Now, that's only half the issue. Let's look at this portion in chapter 7, and we're going to start in verse 13 and read through to 23. Did that which is good then bring death to me? And he's talking about the law, which is good. Did the law bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not want to do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And here's the specific text that she's probably referencing here. So, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself, serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So we really need to take notice of what Paul is describing here, that our sinful nature, our fleshly passions are what drive us to sin, and the law is good and spiritual and right, and by it our sins are brought to light and exposed. So Paul is describing an internal conflict but not merely an internal one, but a conflict of the spirit against the flesh. In his mind, he agrees with the law of God, the commands of God, that they should be obeyed and fulfilled. But his flesh fights him and produces sinful acts. 
That is what he means by, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And that he serves the law of God with his mind, but with his flesh serves the law of sin. Now here is the way Miss Edwards describes the conflict. So he's talking about, like, hey, the things that I want to do, I don't do. Things I know I should do, I do. It's kind of like, I know I should not have the donut. But then the donut has a whisper. And it's like, yes, it won't be that bad. Remember, you ate a salad yesterday. That's what happens, right? And you're like, yeah, the salad is going to go in. And with the donut, it's going to win. And so we start telling ourselves stuff. Because there's an internal war being waged. That's what's happening, and Paul is saying the same thing happens in our spiritual life. I want to do right things, because when you get saved, the Holy Spirit's in there telling you, you got to do the right thing, but your flesh is like, mm-mm, this wrong thing feels good. Well, no, the internal struggle is not like justifying eating something that's bad for you. It's the struggle not to sin, because sin is rebellion against the God who created us, against the divine man who lived and died for us, and it quenches the spirit that dwells within us. Now, why do I make a point in clarifying this? Because this will become a common theme in each and every message given by the speakers, that our conflict is a battle of the mind and our sin is trivial. But we see from this passage in Romans 8 that the battle is between the spirit and the flesh. For the Christian, the mind delights on the law of God internally. But our flesh fights us to keep us from fulfilling the law, causing us to sin. So there are internal and outward actions being talked about here. We saw over and over Paul saying, I do what I do not want to do. This is action. But if gathering will make it all about internal issues, such as a lack of confidence or having too much control, comparison, lack of hope, fear, not feeling accepted, etc., instead of our struggle with sin and obedience to the law. Now, is this intentional? I believe it is. Why do I make that conclusion? Because while they did read all of chapter 8 in the beginning of the conference, the specific passages referencing the flesh, how it cannot submit to God's law, how we are not to set our minds on the flesh and are to put it to death, this being our sin, Romans 8:13. These verses are either twisted or ignored entirely by the speakers and messages given. Going back to Jada's message, she continues in teaching us that we will have conflict and conviction as well, where she then goes on to relay how God may speak to us at times, convicting us of certain things. Her examples of times she's been convicted are again very trivial, describing where she thinks God has told her to be quiet, or where he brought scripture to a mind to which she thought it was to correct someone else, but he says it's actually for her. I actually find this kind of funny, as if only certain portions of scripture are to be applied to her at certain times, as if they're not for her at all times. And then she talks about being in Christ Jesus means those who follow Christ Jesus. Instead of drawing out from scripture what it means to follow Jesus, 
She talks about society's idea of following people on social media to clarify that to follow Jesus doesn't mean what the world makes it to be, but that it means that one is committed and has made Jesus Lord. Now, I wish she would have gone into more of how Jesus is Lord, but she does mention that um, it's only in Christ Jesus that we actually find freedom. Planning. We, we love to find purpose and calling, and this is important, but it's not the key to our freedom. We love to find healing. We want our marriages fixed, but they're not the key to our freedom. It's only in Christ Jesus. And one of the most dangerous things that we can offer in our church and in our culture is that there is some path to freedom apart from Jesus. That if you work really hard and go through recovery and do your work, you will find freedom. That is only if you're standing on the foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those things on their own will serve no purpose. Jesus has changed the game. And that's where our freedom is. He gives us eternal protection from eternal condemnation. This is where she could go right back into the text of Romans 8, 1 to 4, and draw out how Christ has given us freedom and from what. Let us read it. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. We were set free from the condemnation that is rightfully due to us because we did not keep God's law. Which is why Christ came in the likeness of sinful flesh to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law for us. It is Christ's active obedience imputed or credited to us that sets us free from the law of sin and death. That is why we are free. Ms. Edwards did not go into this, but continues with the practicality of our freedom and how we do not need to justify or defend our lives to others, and encourages us not to hide when life is happening because, since Christ has set us free from eternal condemnation, he can certainly set us free from earthly condemnation. She then appeals to two types of people in the audience who may not be convinced of this truth of the gospel and then presents it to us. There's two people that I think I'm probably talking to tonight that are in this room or in your living room. One, maybe you're not convinced of this truth. You need to understand, and I want to challenge you, that this truth is critical. It's not optional. I want to challenge you, if you're not convinced that maybe you are approaching life apart from Jesus, and he's just kind of your sidekick, but he's not in the driver's seat. I'm not promising that he's going to fix everything and every problem, but I can guarantee he's fixed the most important one. Because at birth, we were at odds with God. At birth, we were enemies of God. The Bible says we were running the opposite way, and while we were yet sinners... While we were anti-God, while we ourselves were Paul the Apostle in whatever fashion it took shape in our own lives, God said, I'm going to pursue you. I'm going to run after you. His grace and our faith have created a permanent solution. That's a game changer. If you're not convinced of this truth, this is a game changer. Now, this is going to seem petty, 
but I have to squabble on this. We are talking about the gospel here, the good news. And she's got the problem right, pointing out that we were in rebellion against God, but God's solution or action to fix the problem was not that he pursued us, though it was all his work and is a gift he gives to us. His solution was to send his son to live in perfect obedience to the law to fulfill the law for us, and then willingly go to the cross take our sin upon himself, becoming sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 To minimize the work of Christ to mere pursuit, leaving out the actual work in accomplishing our reconciliation to God, is to not present the gospel at all. And we know that there are unbelievers in this conference who need to hear what Christ did to make us right with God. She then encourages us to encourage others into this gospel, the one she presented, challenging them not to alter this word because it's uncomfortable or inconvenient, yet she herself altered it in a way, minimizing the work of Christ to mere pursuing us. And she really hammers this. You can even hear the emotion in her voice. If she had presented the gospel fully, I would have been right there getting emotional and shouting, Amen in my spirit. And I get we can misspeak and forget points in the moment, but that is why it is best to exegete the text. If she had merely done that, she would have drawn out from the text and other scripture passages the full gospel, especially in Romans, because that is what it is all about. Now, I tell you, I really like Jada Edwards. From previous sermons of hers, I think she grasped Uh, scriptural truths and would be a great teacher to women if she focused on exegeting the scripture more than making it relatable through stories and experiences, as well as being a beautiful testimony to the authority of scripture if she submitted to its instruction for women. She's funny, quick-witted, and engaging, yet she regularly preaches and teaches to a mixed congregation in her church. But that is part of the course for most of the speakers at the If Gathering. All right, our next session was given by Jenny Allen, in which she's supposed to dive into Romans 8, 5 to 8. Let's get into that. So let's look at it in context, including verses 1 to 4 as we read. But... Remember, just a bit ago, we looked at what Paul was talking about at the end of chapter 7, in which he's explaining how the spirit wrestles with the flesh. That the law is spiritual, but the flesh is sold under sin, therefore he does not understand his own actions. That in his mind he is agreeing with the law that it is good, and yet he does not accomplish the law. He has a desire to do what is right, obey the law, but the evil he does not want to do, he keeps on doing. He delights in the law of God and his inner being, but he sees in his members another law that wages war against the mind, making him captive to the law of sin that dwells in his members. 
It is because he delights in God's law and wishes to obey it that he cries out in desperation that he is wretched because he is in need of a righteousness that is not his own so that he may be reconciled to God. And it is from identifying this need that the gospel rescues us from condemnation. That's where chapter 8 is taking off. So let's dive into it. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Okay. Clearly in context Paul is talking about the war between the spirit and the flesh. The inability of the flesh to be able to obey or submit to God's law, for it cannot. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. But what does it mean by setting the mind on the Spirit? That's what I want you to keep in mind, because this is what Miss Allen's message is all about. The question is, though, what does Miss Allen say setting our minds on the Spirit is? Is it the same as what Scripture describes here? So, let's dive into her message. Right off the bat, she states that this passage is about what it means to set the mind on and that God gave her an analogy to be used. She reads the text up to verse 7 and explains that what we set our minds on is what we are going to think about. She recites verse 7 and 8, but moves on to say that we do not have life and peace without Jesus and states we have another storyline if we have Jesus, one who sets our mind on the spirit. Now, this is where her analogy comes in, and I'll describe it for those listening through the podcast. On the stage, she has two basketball hoops, one on either side of the stage. She describes that one side is setting the mind on the flesh, and the other hoop is setting our mind on the spirit. She proceeds to throw the basket at the flesh hoop, listing off certain fleshly things such as success, career, riches, pleasures, etc., as she aims for the net. She then proceeds to the opposite side and then asks people to tell her what a person looks like who has set their mind on the spirit. Let's check out what they say. Life and peace. Let's describe it. What would or does a free, sold-out Christian who is setting their mind on the spirit, what do they look like? Like, just say the words. Let's go. Hopeful. Joyful, confident, free, peaceful, settled, kind, fearless. Love y'all's answers. Enough. 
Okay, so she has set it up to describe a person who has set their mind on the spirit as looking like one who has peace, hope, confidence, etc. And this sounds legit, doesn't it? But there is a slight problem, and I will go into that in a bit. But first, let's see where she goes with the analogy. So she's throwing the basketball into the net to make the point that someone who sets their mind on the spirit will make the net. A group of women circle her and block her from making the net. Here's that clip. And what I just played out for you, that doesn't surprise you. If you grew up in Sunday school, okay, good versus evil, I, can make, I have a choice. I'll choose to think on the spirit. I won't choose to think about the flesh. And all of that, to some degree, you understand. But what I want to propose is there's more happening here. That it's not just as simple as a choice. Like, I'm going to go over here. There is an all-out attack. <laughs> so I'm trying to shoot. I'm trying to shoot. But it is literally, good job. It is literally, I can't. Like, I want to hit that goal. I want, thanks, guys. I want to be, I want to be setting my mind over here and hitting it every single time. But for some reason, it feels like most of the church isn't. We have a problem. Because if the vision God gave me was disciple a whole generation, it's going to take all of us. So why aren't we free? Why aren't we free? So in her analogy, she's trying to draw out that there are things that keep us from making that net. That if we set our minds to being peaceful, hopeful, and confident, we as a church should be accomplishing that. Well, here's the problem. Is this what Paul means by setting our minds on the Spirit? Is it a conflict between good and evil and choosing peace, hope, joy, etc., other than worldly things? No. All throughout the letter to the Romans, Paul has been describing how all men are under the wrath of God because they do not submit to God's law. He's not saying our problem is that we pursue material things, success, careers, riches, and we only need to pursue peace, love, and joy. These certainly are things we need to address, but in this passage, he's talking about something way more specific, obeying the law of God. Another issue in twisting setting our minds on the spirit to mean this is that she has made these things, peace, hope, love, kindness, etc., law. These things one must strive for as a Christian, but they are not law. They are fruits. They are the result of our freedom in the gospel. The results of those who have crucified the flesh. Galatians 5, 13-24 expounds upon this even more. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. 
For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So what bothers me most about this twist is in making these fruits law, something that we have a goal towards accomplishing. She's rejecting that these are the works of the third person of the Trinity, not our works, his works. But it gets worse. She then goes into some statistics dealing with negative thoughts. Let me give you a few statistics real quickly. I've been studying this for about two years now, and I'll tell you this. What I thought was a little bit of a science experiment has turned into, in my life, world war. So let's start with your thoughts. Each of you have 9,000 to 60,000 thoughts in a day. 9,000 to 60,000 thoughts. My husband swears I have 150,000. It's the only expertise I brought to this in the beginning. (laughs) I have a lot of thoughts. Of those thoughts, science will tell us that over 80% of them are negative. Over 80% are negative. Now, are you ready for this? Over 90% are repetitive from the day before. That means we're thinking the same toxic thoughts day after day, month after month, year after year. And the reason I wanted to play this out, it had less to do with me getting to play basketball and more to do with that last little part because there is an enemy and he is winning right now. Okay, so over 80% of our thoughts are negative and 90% are repetitive from the day before meaning we are thinking the same toxic thoughts over and over again. I find this quite interesting. Are any of these negative thoughts related to sins we have committed? That in some form we talk down to ourselves because of guilt? But how was this determined? What is considered a negative thought? A thought to myself that might say, I can't do such and such, may seem negative, but it may be true. Then again, it may also be a chance for the power of God to be thought on and meditated on. But notice where she's going with this. She connects negative thoughts with an enemy. Evil never wants you to notice it. So what a powerful plan. Get us alone in the dark and tell us whatever the hell he wants. And he did it to me for 18 months. Sorry for the 
language there. But she then relays her story how she went through 18 months of doubting God and how the enemy used this to attack her. Again, this portion of scripture is not about doubt. It's about putting to death the deeds of the flesh, obeying God's law through the power of the Spirit because Christ is in us. The same power that raised Christ from the grave lives in us to actually help us obey God, albeit not perfectly, but it is the goal of the mind and the heart to submit to God. We are now 16 minutes in, and she now grabs her Bible, opens it up, and says this. So 18 months of doubt will have an effect on you, but that no longer has power over me at all. And we're going to talk about where that comes from and why that freedom is possible for you, because it is possible for you. So there is an enemy, okay? Y'all believe in me right now about that? C.S. Lewis says, the problem with the church is we either disbelieve there's demons or we make too big a deal about them. We're not doing either of those in this room, okay? There is an enemy. I want to just use Jesus' words on this one because, you know, he's Jesus. In middle school, my youth pastor said, don't talk about the devil too much. My view is, if there's a dark cosmic force, as Ephesians says, coming against me, I think we should talk about it a little. So, John 8, verse 44. You are the father of the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. And then he's going to describe the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, let me be really clear. When I went on this season of doubt, my faith was not in jeopardy. My faith is secure not by my knowledge of God. My faith is secure because I am sealed in the Holy Spirit, as Beth talked about last night. I could have not lost my faith. I really believe that. There were times I felt like I was losing my faith, but I couldn't have lost it. So those of you that are wrestling in a season of doubt, let me just give you that lifeline. That, that you can't lose your faith if you have trusted in the blood of Jesus. Now make sure you have plus, trusted in the blood of Jesus because there's not another way. But if you've trusted in the blood of Jesus, you cannot lose that. But there is an enemy. And what is, it's so cool, what, I mean, cool, it's insightful, what Jesus says about it. Very clearly. Takes a few verses to do it. He is a, he is a liar. See, the reason I wanted to demonstrate this to you, I wanted to show you what we're up against, is because I think, we think, our thoughts are no big deal. I didn't think they were a big deal. I sat in them without saying a word to anyone for eight months. When people have asked me why I didn't share it, they assume it's shame. It wasn't shame. I'm pretty vulnerable. Like, I'd tell the whole world. I struggled with doubt. It was really bad. I was almost an atheist. Um, I'll tell you. That's not it. It wasn't shame. I believe Romans 8.1. It was, I didn't think it was a big deal. How cool. How cool of the devil to get us in the dark alone. And then tell us what he wants. I mean, what a great plan. So get us in isolation. Get us, not taught, no, get us not noticing our thoughts, our own thoughts first. And then get us in a place where we're not worried about them. And then get us in a place where we're not telling anybody about them. It's a problem. Okay, so a couple of things are going on in this clip. Let's start with the good. 
Amen. Salvation is God's work, and our faith is a gift from Him, as Christ says in John 6.37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Reformed theology describes this doctrine as a perseverance of the saints, a very comforting doctrine derived from Scripture. But I want to look at the passage in John 8 that she went to, because she's using this passage to say that the devil comes in the dark to give us lies when we don't pay attention. Is John 8.44 saying this as well? Remember how she talked about freedom? It's wonderful how God's word is, because it is in John 8 that Jesus talks about being set free. Let's put the verse back in context and look at it and see if Jesus is talking about the thoughts in our minds. So Jesus said, oh, I'm starting from verse 31 here, sorry. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is that? How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the word of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. This passage starts with Jesus contrasting his disciples with the disciples of Satan. Those who abide in Jesus' words are his disciples because it is the truth that will set them free. Jesus, talking to the Pharisees, describes them as being enslaved to the devil, slaves to their sin because they practice sin, and that if they loved God, they would love him. But they do not because they are of the father the devil, who is a liar and the father of lies. So the truth is in relation to God's word. And specifically, the truth that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. While those who do not believe in Christ and do not abide in his word are believing the lie of Satan. And in believing Satan, they will die in their sins. But not only that, 
they, the Pharisees, are like their father Satan, who is a murderer, as they, the Pharisees, seek to kill Christ. So this verse is not in relation to our doubts and negative thoughts that enter our mind in the dark. Here's the thing, though. By introducing an enemy, something outside of ourselves, she rejects that it is our flesh that is the problem. This may allow a person who sets their mind on the flesh to continue to set their mind on the flesh, a.k.a. live in sin, yet believe they are setting their mind on the spirit by merely thinking positive thoughts. The other issue with this is that she does not differentiate between negative thoughts and lies. These are two different things. Negative thoughts can be subjective. What one person takes negatively, another may not. But lies, lies are objective. They are lies regardless how one takes them or feels about them. By connecting evil behind negative thoughts without making a distinction that negative thoughts do not necessarily mean lies, she has made a way for a person to reject truth in claiming the negative thought is from the evil one. Here's an example. I can feel called to preach a sermon to a mixed congregation at a Sunday morning service and have been invited to by my pastor to do so. In preparation for my sermon, a thought comes to my mind that I shouldn't be doing this, that it's not right, that I am a woman and I am unqualified. I label these negative thoughts and identify them as coming from Satan to keep me from accomplishing God's will. After all, he, God, put this desire in my heart, right? See what I did there? I decided what is negative and positive, and in my sin, what I want to hear is always deemed positive. But the real question is, is it true? She identifies negative thoughts as coming from the enemy, and he is a liar. Therefore, the negative thoughts are lies. This is a problem. Does Romans 8, 5 to 8 talk about an enemy that presents negative thoughts to us? No, it does not talk about an enemy outside of us, but it's talking about our own flesh, our very nature, as we are enemies against God living in unrighteousness and ungodliness and under sin. Romans 3, 9-10 and 5, 10. All throughout Romans, Paul is making clear that all of mankind are sinners and will one day stand guilty before God because we suppress the truth in unrighteousness, and in that suppression follow our flesh, and transgress against God's holy law. The case that Paul is making is that we are under sin, guided by our flesh, and the battle in the context of Romans 8, 5-8 is with our flesh, our sinful nature, not an enemy outside of ourselves who presents us with negative thoughts, but our own flesh that presents us with sin. She then asks the question, What is the fight and how are we going to fight? Her answer is that we set the mind on the spirit. Here's where she explains what it means to set the mind on the spirit. He says, set your mind on the spirit. It is the person of God. It isn't just good things or religious things or, you know, Christian things. It's God himself. You set your mind on him and life and kindness and goodness and general self-control. Those things are going to start growing out of your life. You're not even going to have to force them. You're not going to have to will them. 
Life and peace is going to flow up in you and out of you, John says. So, yes, this is true. But Romans 8, 5 to 8 is a bit more specific than merely focusing on God. Setting the mind on the Spirit is setting the mind on God, but the text explains what it means to set the mind on God. To put to death the deeds of the flesh. Going back to verse 6. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are the flesh cannot please God. In the context of Romans, to set our mind on the Spirit is to set our mind on God, yes, but more specifically, to set our minds on obeying His commands, to submit to God's law. After referencing 2 Corinthians 10.4, really only reading half of the verse, to point to the spiritual battle as a battle of the mind and our lack of knowledge of God, She makes a good point that we tend to buy the lie of self-help books instead of looking at Jesus. And then here is where she will lead us into the weapons she gives us to fight the spiritual battle so that we may set our minds on the spirit. What are the weapons that God has given us? Because apparently they're powerful. Apparently they could change everything. They could change everything. Three things. The Word of God, the Spirit of God, and the people of God. The Word of God. What is true? What is true? How many of the things we worry about, get depressed about, struggle with, has nothing to do with reality? What is true? The Word of God. The Spirit of God. So glad Beth got that one. Y'all, because the fear of God is in her. She lets him show all the time. We have possibility and capacity beyond anything we can imagine. And you know what I do now in the middle of the night when I wake up? I get up and I'm like, and if I ever start to feel any darkness come over me. In the name of Jesus Christ, you get away from me, Satan. That's what I do. And I pray for missionaries in foreign countries. Because I'm like, if you're going to wake me up, we're going to do some damage for the kingdom. Not kidding. I have a name. You can send me yours. You're going to wake me up. We're going to do work. Make you mad. And the people of God. The day I said it out loud was the beginning of freedom. I won't say that at that exact moment I was set free, but I'd say I was about 75%. Because something about saying it out loud... Took it from the dark, alone, to the light, with some fighters. Okay, so let's address these weapons. The first weapon is the word of God. What is true? But she doesn't clarify that scripture is that word. The second weapon is the spirit of God, who brings possibility or capacity beyond anything we can imagine. Relays the story of what she does now. When woken up in the middle of the night, she rebukes Satan and then prays for missions. This is her example of the Holy Spirit bringing possibility, but where is the reliance on the Word of God? The Holy Spirit does not bring possibility to our lives, but faith, understanding of God's Word, repentance, and fruit in keeping with repentance, obedience to His Word. 
In fact, this is what Romans 8 is about, the role and power of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life. Her third weapon is the people of God, that we should confess our thoughts to others so that they will bring the word of God, again not clarifying that the word of God is scripture. My question is, does scripture give us weapons to use to fight against spiritual battles? Yes, it does. God in his grace gives us his very words in scripture to thoroughly equip us for every good work. Do those good works include fighting and wrestling with spiritual issues? Yes. In Ephesians six ten to 20 the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul is very clear what weapons and armor we are to equip ourselves with to stand against the schemes of the devil. That was verse 11. These weapons are the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, being clothed with Christ as he is our righteousness, 1 Corinthians one thirty, shoes for our feet, the readiness to give an answer for the hope that is within us, that's 1 Peter 3.15, the shield of faith to extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, the helmet of salvation, the gospel applied to us, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And with God's mighty armor, we are praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keeping alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, all who boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel, verses 18 to 19. We also have Christ's example in the wilderness, Luke 4, 1-13, where we see him fight temptation from Satan with faith and strength in the word of God. While I wouldn't say Miss Allen's weapons are unbiblical, I wonder why she doesn't give us what scripture says. Besides this, there's the issue that Romans 8 verses 5 to 8 doesn't talk about weapons we need to fight a spiritual battle with an enemy who presents us with negative thoughts. She goes into how her friends help her fight with her spiritual battle with prayer and fasting, and then goes into another story on her daughter dealing with learning disabilities and the struggle she had in school. She uses these stories to describe how we believe Three fundamental lies. Let's listen in. There's three fundamental lies. And the worship teams are going to come out. And I want, this will help you. Because right now, what you're going to do, you got 60,000 thoughts every day? <laughs> How do we even boil it down? And, and in my research, one of my friends, that's a, a counselor, she taught me this. She said, so Jenny, there's, there's three lies that, that all of us believe. And I was like, baby, I'm sorry to tell you. I work with women a lot too. And they have more than three. She was like, nope. Three. You ready? I am worthless. I am helpless. I am unlovable. So let's first take notice where she got these lies. Her counselor friend. And the lies are, I'm worthless, I'm helpless, and I am unlovable. Now, are these actually lies, though? Now, she presented and addressed these lies in her book. I went through these, I believe, in episode either 14 or 15 from season 1 of Thoroughly Equipped. I basically showed how these are not really lies and that scripture explains our wretchedness and complete need for Christ in these things. So to answer that question, you can check those episodes out. This is why she's giving this message, though, not actually addressing the text, because it will promote her book. I know that sounds presumptive of me, but why else has she not really addressed the Romans 8 text? 
Right after this, she gives an example of how worry of hers is related to one of these lies. And they said, well, give us something that you're worried about. I was like, my son, he's, he's about to go to college, and, and he's really cute, and I'm worried he's going to date a girl I don't like, and I'm worried he's, he's going to make bad decisions, and, and I hope he's not here right now. But, but she said, so what, is, what, you, what are you really worried about? I was like, I don't know that he's going to go to prison. Perfectly good kid, by the way. She's like, okay. So you feel helpless. Oh, you're good. You're good. I'm worthless. I'm helpless. I'm unlovable. Now, let me tell you the good part. All the self-help books I read, there weren't any answers. Not to those three. Not ones that felt right to my soul. But this book has answers to all three. It has answers to all three. I am helpless. I have the Spirit of God for me. He chose me. He has equipped me with every good work that I will do in my short life here. He is building a home for me. You are not that helpless. You have a lot going for you. Now, I really appreciate that she points to Scripture saying it has answers when wrestling with these thoughts. But... I wonder about her applications of the scriptures in regards to wrestling with these thoughts. Is scripture a resource we can go to to combat negative thoughts with encouragement such as, you are not helpless, you have the Holy Spirit, God equips you for every good work, etc.? The scriptures also say we are helpless. It is God that works both in and through us to do good works. And that in our weakness or helplessness, it is God who helps. He is our helper because we are helpless. She uses scripture like these to combat the three lies in the exact same way. So notice who the emphasis is on when we tell ourselves, I am not helpless because I have the Holy Spirit. God equips me for every good work, etc. The emphasis is on ourselves and boosts ourselves. That's the problem with taking verses like these out of context to recite to ourselves when we feel unconfident or helpless. Our confidence should rest on God, meditating on His character and the work He has done and is doing. Even the verse that she is using to combat the lie that she's helpless is saying that God is doing the equipping, that he prepared these works for us to do. The emphasis is on him. It's okay to memorize verses. I heartily encourage that. I would only urge women to understand why these verses are true and who they are really about, God. So I might encourage women who wrestle with feelings of helplessness with this. Yes, we are helpless, but God is our helper, and he has given us the Holy Spirit to equip us for every good work that he prepared for us to walk in. Let us go to his word and trust that he will guide us through the Holy Spirit unto wisdom in guiding our children. Not only, not only this, but let us appeal to God who can grant our children wisdom and understanding. May he be their great helper as well. One way of using the scriptures puts 
trust and glory in ourselves. The other appeals to God and puts trust and gives glory to him. And that's pretty much the end of her message. Extremely subtle twists take place here as she describes setting our minds on the things of the spirit as fighting the enemy who attacks us with negative thoughts. That is not what Romans 8, 5 to 8 is saying. The passage is making it clear that to set the mind on the spirit is to pursue the things of God, Christ, the gospel, and his law. She claims that it is the enemy that brings negative thoughts or doubts, but that is not found in the Romans text either. This can draw people to believe that the problem is outside of themselves and not actually rooted in their sin or lack of faith, which is what Paul is addressing. She gives weapons to fight these spiritual battles with the enemy, which are very general weapons. She does not give the weapons laid out for us very clearly in scripture. And while she encourages us to look to scripture for truth, her encouragement is more self-centered than God-centered. As well as encouraging us to look to scripture, she herself doesn't go into scripture. And that's it for today's episode. Out of eight sessions from the If Gatherings 2020 conference, we went through the first two portions of Romans 8, verses 1 to 4, with a message given by Jad Edwards, and verses 5 to 8 with a message given by Jenny Allen. In the next episode, we will look at Romans 8, 9 to 11, with a message given by the very popular speaker, Beth Moore, and verses 14 to 17 with a message given by Joe Saxon. We will again look at these verses in context and examine how these speakers handle the text and who or what they preach about. Until next time, I pray you are diving into all of Romans, as it is so theologically thick and rich, that you are examining your own sinful nature how you were or are rebellious against the Holy God, and that you, by the grace of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, were brought to repentance and trust in the finished work of Christ. I pray that you see Christ given to you through the epistle of Romans as as your only hope and the greatest display of God's gift of love for you, and that if you know Christ, you are once again reminded of this gospel and walk in the glory of it today and every day forward. And if you don't know it, I pray that you do. I pray you are in his word. Ladies, if you are interested in the transcript for this episode, you can go to ttew.org. You can find other great resources, articles, blogs, and videos that may bless you in your Christian walk, as well as links to follow me on social media. If you wish to contact me, you can email me at thoroughlyequipped316 at gmail.com. Again, the website address is ttew.org. Thoroughly Equipped is part of Striving for Eternity's Christian podcast community. Striving for Eternity is a Christ-centered ministry focused on equipping people for eternity by assisting Christians to have an eternal perspective on life. They strive to bring evangelism, discipleship, apologetics, and Christian living together for the purpose of eternal preparation 
by exalting God, edifying and equipping the saints, and evangelizing the lost. They provide speakers, online articles, online courses, books, podcasts, and other theological resources, all centered on God's Word. To find out more, go to strivingforeternity.org. And to listen to other podcasts, go to podcast.strivingforeternity.org. I pray that their resources bless you as they have blessed me as we live our lives day by day, praising and glorifying God.